The New Testament reading is taken from Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9 through to verse 20. One like the Son of Man. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a fern, and he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, as we continue our study of the book of Revelation, we claim the promises we read last week of being blessed when we read this book and blessed when we hear and take it to heart. So now let us prayerfully take heed of your instructions from this passage tonight. Amen. Okay, folks, it's quiz time. I, uh, I wonder if you recognize some of these people. This uh, might be a hard one, but that's a personal favorite. Uh, any, any ideas who that fine gentleman is? No? That's Alice Cooper. <laughs> uh, a man that, incidentally, has a Bible study group in his house every week. What about that one? Now, I've got some good ones here, haven't I? <laughs> That's Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Any ideas? It's no, nearly. <laughs> it's Julie Andrews. <laughs> People, haven't you? It's, uh... Oh, nobody's got any yet. Bob Hope. This one really uh, blew my mind. No, that's Mother Teresa. And what about this fine-looking chap? No, nobody recognise it. Yes. <laughs> what a cutie. <laughs> Do you recognise what that is? Yes. <laughs> Yes. So uh, this passage tonight, I'm struck by this vision of Christ, which challenged me to consider how well I recognize Jesus, whether my mental picture of him is not only correct, but worthy of his majesty. Before we start to unpack that, let's just have a quick rebut. I'm excited about studying Revelation. For far too long, I've avoided studying the book. Uh, William Barclay, who did add some interesting theological views, wrote, The Revelation is notoriously the most difficult and bewildering book in the New Testament. But doubtless, too, we shall find it infinitely worthwhile to wrestle with it until it gives us its blessings and opens its riches to us. I mean, this book has coloured our language. We get words in, in our language such as apocalypse, people in heaven seated on clouds playing harps, pearly gates, 666, alpha and omega, the lake of burning sulfur, streets paved with gold, the four horsemen, and of course, Armageddon. For me, I thought I would need to wait until I was a grown-up before I was able to tackle the challenge of this book. Uh, but I, I think now that, uh, as it was pointed out when we, just before we started the series, that it's potentially one of the most important books in the Bible with a unique claim that it will bless its readers. So I started to get excited, things promised. And I'm hoping through the sermon series and home groups, we can gain insights into this special book and explore some of the things it says to us today, giving us a perspective on the past and a foretaste of what is to come. And a spoiler alert, the good guys win in the end. Now last week, Matt introduced the book saying that he believed that the book was written by St. John the Apostle. And I agree. Some claim that the writing style is so very much different from the Gospel of John, which it is, but I believe there are good reasons for that. And also, there's a lot of debate about when it was written. Now, historians claim that John the Apostle lived till his old age, 
and was probably a teenager when he first met Jesus as a young fisherman who had been previously a disciple of John the Baptist. I favor the theory that John wrote his Gospels early on and probably an Aramaic speaker, he might have dictated that Gospel, what you might call to a ghostwriter. In fact, all scripture is God-breathed, so it is all Holy Ghost-written. I also favor the theory that John was in exile on Patmos during the reign of the Roman emperor imposed requirements to worship him. But that was probably more to consolidate his power base amongst local authorities. So John may well have been out of favor in his 60s or older when he wrote this book, exiled on an island without a scribe. No wonder the Greek grammar might be a little raw, but that's what makes it all the more real. Tonight, we are looking at the second half of chapter 1, starting at verse 9. The scene is where John was on the island Patmos in exile for his faith. Clearly, this wasn't a holiday retreat for him, as he was patiently enduring the suffering, which was to comfort his readers in similar situations. This is an island about the twice the size of Hailing Island, just off the coast of modern Turkey. Typically, exiles were made to work in quarries, mining stone to make the high-quality Roman buildings and roads and infrastructure. It is encouraging that John, for all his apostolic credentials, addresses the readers as brothers and companions, and I think that includes us. At the end, of his friends and fellow apostles had met with some in, in, uh, unpleasant martyrdom. Paul was beheaded. Stephen was stoned. Peter crucified upside down. Mark was dragged through the streets and then burnt. And his own brother James was beheaded. However, this disciple whom Jesus loved would live to old age and now received these visions to encourage those in the church. Maybe it was smuggled out to build up the churches on the mainland, as it also encourages us today. I've always had this picture of John walking along a sandy beach on a lazy Sunday lunchtime when he had this vision. But in the last week, I have come to think that it's more likely that he was in a cave. In fact, that's what the tourist board on Patmos will have you believe. They'll take you around his cave. And he was resting after a hard day's toil. I can't imagine that slave exiles were given the day, day off from their labors. The passage says he was in the spirit. Despite his circumstances, he was still able to focus on God. It is encouraging to us that to know that irrespective of the surroundings and the distractions, not only even in the valley of the shadow of death. I guess he was so focused on being in the spirit that he needed a loud shout behind him to get his attention. How important it is for us not only to worship in spirit, but also still be alert to any promptings from God. 
we should be careful to face in the correct direction as well. Our spiritual focus should be on Jesus. I wonder if we're ever guilty of saying to God, don't disturb me now. I'm in the middle of serious liturgy. But that voice didn't just attract his attention. It gave him a command. Get writing. Coming into the presence of God isn't just about for our edification. I don't think it was the first time he had had audible instructions from God. And I know some people here have also had that. Ask Beryl later on. And what a blessing we have had to receive what John, obeying his command, wrote down on account of what he was to see and post it to seven churches. The, uh, the nearest uh, and all the seven churches on the mainland were given in this account in clockwise order, almost the order you would send the postman. The specifics of what was for these churches we will cover in the following seven weeks. I find this exciting and challenging. Maybe there are some pointed messages for St. John's as we see all too real issues being addressed to these congregations. Let us be prepared to be challenged. When John turns around, he's overwhelmed by what he sees. He turns to see who is addressing him and he sees seven golden lampstands and an awesome person standing among them. We will get to see the number seven 52 times in Revelation, quite a lot. And it usually means in the Bible, completeness, completeness. That awesome presence amongst the lampstands was like a son of man. An expression similar to that by Jesus when he said, the son of the man, about 81 times in the Gospels. And that Messianic title is found in Daniel. I've got quite a few issues with that picture, by the way. It's, uh, but uh, we'll leave that up to you to this description. This son of man was dressed as a high priest with washing powder advert dazzling brightness. It's quite a sunglasses moment. I even brought some. You know, I wondered whether or not it was prophetic the other week that we were all given sunglasses in the service. But he, was, uh, he had bright clothes, a gold sash, white head and hair, eyes like blazing fires, and even his feet were glowing. What puzzles me is John was with Jesus for three years and was one of his first-hand witnesses to Jesus' transfiguration which is interestingly not in John's gospel, where Jesus' appearance changed and his face shone like the sun. His, his clothes became as bright as flashes of lightning. So why didn't he recognize him straight away? Maybe some of the symbols were a distraction, which might have something to do with it. Seven stars in his right hand and a sharp sword out of his mouth. Many of the disciples didn't recognize the resurrected Jesus straight away as well. Was it his appearance or were their minds so close to seeing him? I don't know about you, but how many times have you seen someone in a...
do we expect to see Jesus in our lives? And would we recognize him at work? We are actually told what the meaning of some of these symbols were at the end of the passage. But for some of the others, I suggest they can be further explored in home groups. And I've sent out a list of questions and, and references to the home group leaders. As well as John's description of Jesus, which has many echoes in the Old Testament scripture. In fact, I was amazed to find out that the book of Revelation has no direct Old Testament quotes, but has something like over 600 echoes or allusions, which are uh, in this book of only 405 verses. So that suggests an average of about one uh, Old Testament uh, uh, echo per verse. I suggest that a look at some of the visions of Daniel and Zechariah might help us get the perspective and further insight into these visions. What I also found out in this week, which was interesting, is that the book, this book up to about chapter 20 is mainly a reformatting of what is in the Old Testament and now put in an ordered way with the perspective now that the Messiah has come. So it's the last two. But I'm struck by the thought that I, as I think of the description of Jesus, could it be that he most closely resembles his father? The family likeness, which perhaps we will inherit one day too. The understandable response to facing the full majesty of God is to fall at his feet. Actually, this isn't so much of a bowing down in worship as more being completely bowled over. A complete revelation of God's majesty doesn't demand supplication. It's unavoidable. Jesus being a loving God reassures John by placing his right hand on him. And hopefully the seven stars were elsewhere now as he puts his right hand on him. Jesus now offers his credentials of office. He's the first and the last. Jesus was there at the beginning of creation, the creative word of God, which brought all things into being. And in the weeks ahead, we will see him very much part of the end times too. He is the living and was dead. The resurrection is a key part of our belief. Hang on to that truth. Keep reading 1 Corinthians 15. So let us rejoice that Jesus was the first fruits of those promises. And in fact, this morning on the radio, I heard the news that uh, we've selected Dr. John Shepherd as uh, an ambassador from the, for the Church of England to Rome. Um, and he does not uh, believe in the resurrection. Jesus holds also the keys. And these are the keys of death and Hades. Maybe there's another sermon here, as there's also a set of keys that were handed to St. Peter. So do not let us be discouraged. Jesus is controlling the entrance of, to death and Hades, and don't let the devil tell you otherwise. The last subsection of the chapter, in verses 19 and 20, give us a welcome insight into the meaning of some of these aspects of the vision. Again, John is encouraged to write Jesus' words, what is now and what will take place later. 
And that suggests to me the relevance of the book is something to instruct us about holy living now. And it's not just a prophecy to give us a warm feeling about the future times of tribulation. It's for the here and now too. And in case we struggle to interpret some of these, they are the angels and the churches. The angels, which literally translated are messengers, is possibly difficult to understand in this context. Some commentators suggest they refer to the pastors of the churches, others the spirit of the churches. Either way, Jesus has his agents to lead us at his fingertips. And whereas he himself is present amongst the seven churches. And the seven churches represent all the churches. Now I don't believe for one moment this book was written for the sole benefit of those specific churches in Asia Minor. I believe we need to prayerfully listen to the message to those churches over the next seven weeks and consider if some of the blessings and warnings given to them should be applied to us now. So John sees Jesus now fully revealed in glory. He holds full authority. The spirit of the church is in his right hand. He commands with power through the sword. He is dressed as a high priest, giving us access to the Father. And most comforting, he walks amongst his church. Despite circumstances, persecution, exile, old age, John to bless those churches. Sometimes God uses our humble circumstances as a springboard to bless and come alongside others. Maybe we should ponder on what opportunities our circumstances might be used to bless others. So do we recognize him? I don't mean do we know what he looks like, but do we recognize his authority over the church? Do we recognize and accept his commands? Do we recognize his sheer awesome presence and yet his love for each one of us? I imagine that his right hand holding the seven stars, if you look closely, those carpenter's hands would show the scars of the crucifixion, wounds he endured for you and me. Let us pray. Dear Lord, help us to listen to what the Spirit says to the church in Southbourne. Help us to see you for who you really are and that we might come to appreciate your power, your authority, your majesty and the sacrifice you made to allow us access to your glory. Amen. It's not often we stop and, and just want to praise Jesus for who he is. And what I love about what Martin was saying is about how we realize that his presence, he walks amongst the church, he has messengers for the church, and we can speak to him. And just ask now that if you something on your heart you want to tell him about or you want to praise him for or give thanks for, then just take that opportunity now.
Father, we thank you that Jesus stands above the church. He stands amongst it and he directs it. And Lord, we thank you that he's, he's made it his, that he is the head of the church. We're sorry for the times we've strayed in our thinking, our theology, our, our, the ways we uh, put our own ideas in there. Lord, we thank you that you have achieved everything through Jesus. Pray that you'll help us to cling to that. We pray that you'd keep us straight. You can close, we pray. Amen. Father, we reminded, why do the nations cry and strive in vain? You are the Lord. And we pray that you would bring our leaders uh, wisdom, that you would overrule in, in situations that are just not right. And Lord, we pray that you would bless us with good leadership, with humble, uh, humble ministers. Pray that your rule would be made known. Father, we grieve that we have strayed so far. Father, we thank you that one day you will, Jesus will come. And then people will be fighting to get into church. Uh, we pray that you would enable us, you would encourage us to, to draw people close to you, to have a passion for you, to, to have that passion, Lord, to uh, remind people of the urgency, of the meaning, the cost. Lord, we work with the families that we, we might struggle with, the people who've walked away, who we still know. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us. these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray.